Hi, friends. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you like what we talk about here on the Belonging Podcast, I think you'll really love my book. It's called Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. And it is available right now wherever books are sold. It is a beautifully illustrated guide to connecting with the earth, your ancestors, and your communities as you come home to your whole self. Though we live in a radically different looking world, the needs of our bodies and spirits are the same as the ancestors we come from. I divide this book into four parts, land, lineage, community, and self, and I take you on a journey for engaging more deeply with your life. I provide stories from my own life and I share rituals, recipes, and ancestral wisdom, journal prompts to support you on your individual and unique and sacred path. You can get more info and bonuses at rootandritualbook.com and pick it up at your favorite bookstore online or in person. Thanks for all your support. It means the world to me. I'm Becca Piastrelli, and this is Belonging, where I talk about what it means to belong to the earth, to our ancestors, to ourselves, and in community. Today's episode is a conversation with Costanza Ileana Shania, and I asked her on because she is a Latinx certified yoga instructor with a total of 10 years of experience in the industry and 300 hours of training in yoga, trauma, and anti-racism. And I really wanted to bring her on to talk about this sort of bigger conversation that's happening in the yoga and wellness community about decolonization and access and privilege. And Costanza Ileana is an expert in this area. She teaches yogis and entrepreneurs how to decolonize their practice, create equity for teachers of color, and build inclusive spaces in the community. So I asked her on to share a bit more as her perspective as a woman of color. What's she seeing in the yoga industry that is causing harm, that doesn't have any sort of reverence or respect for this like ancient, ancient practice that comes out of India and South Asia and how we can bring that back into the space, how we can make it more equitable and how we can really stop causing so much harm through commodifying this very sacred and ancient practice. So you'll hear me sort of grapple with my confusion and frustration with this word namaste which isn't even how you say it. She will tell us how to say it. Stay tuned. And she doesn't say it anymore. And how appropriation is happening, what to look for, what she looks for in yoga studios to really know, is this just for, you know, wealthy white people? Because the origins of yoga are that it's it's for everyone. And how, what to bring up to yoga studio owners and teachers to try to bring in a deeper integrity, a deeper understanding of how we can decolonize this this sacred practice and really um, motivating us to stop centering whiteness 
which she talks more about and educates us on and how to really become more than an ally, become an accomplice, which I love that she says this, to bring deeper awareness to these issues. And I've done this once where I brought up to a former studio. They had these clothing line. They had several clothing lines, one which is pretty well-known called Spiritual Gangster, which uh, is very problematic, the use of the word gangster. What do you mean by that? What are the origins of that word? What community are you commodifying, (laughs) you know, out of that's been oppressed in this culture? Think about it, you know, for a $40 tank top that you wear when you do yoga. And also the use of the word namaste, namaste, namaste in bed all day. And the ways we love the beauty of, let's say, the om symbol or the lotus symbol and Do we really know the origins and can we bring it up? Can we have the courageous, perhaps a little awkward, perhaps a little emotionally intense conversation with the owners of these studios, with the teachers, and how can we collectively be accomplices for a better, more equitable, more just system? And so what I love about this is yoga is something a lot of us either do or dabble in or know of, and it's a microcosm for this greater system of white supremacy that we live in. And, you know, if you're here listening to belonging, you know, I, I, um, I don't shy away from these topics and I really trust that we can all be with whatever comes up in our central nervous systems, whether that's a feeling of defensiveness or fragility or confusion, that we can be with it together and that we can navigate these complex conversations that we're just not having enough. So uh, I'm so appreciative to Costanza Eliana for coming on, doing labor for free to educate us. And I highly recommend you go to the show notes at belongingpodcast.com to learn more about her. Maybe go to one of her workshops and check out the video of how to actually say namaste. So I present to you our conversation about decolonizing yoga. Thank you for being here and for joining me on Belonging. Yes, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so happy to know of you and your work. And thank you for agreeing to come on and talk more about this topic that I find a lot of like well-meaning white women, the WMWWs, uh, Uh are like, I just want to be good (laughs) and I'm confused and what am I allowed to do? And like are a little fragile and scared to go deeper into. So thank you for being like, let's talk about it. Of course. Yeah. I feel like this has become uh, one of the levels of expertise (laughs) that I have walked into here in this industry. So yeah, I'm happy to be here. Cool. Okay. Well, I often ask this of my guess. Mm-hmm. And the answer is whatever the answer is for you. Okay. And the question is, who are your people? Ooh, good question. Who are my people? I think my people are anyone who is willing to dive deep and ask even deeper questions. And my people are definitely those who are just like very intuitively curious. And they follow that intuition into whatever path it, it may lead them, even if it's an uncomfortable path. And they're willing to, to go there for their own growth. 
So mm-hmm. I think to give a very yogic answer, that those are my people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how yeah. long have you been a yoga teacher? So I have been practicing yoga for a little over 10 years now. And I've been teaching yoga for about seven to eight years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. And so could you tell us a bit more about your lineages, who like the lands your ancestors mm-hmm. come from? Yeah, absolutely. So my family comes from Puerto Rico. So both of my parents were born and raised. Both of their parents were born and raised in Puerto Rico. And I was not. I was born in Ithaca, New York, upstate New York, because my parents were both pursuing a master's and a PhD. So they finished that up shortly after I was born. And then they moved back to Puerto Rico to raise me and my sister. So mm. English is not my first language, even though I was born in the US. Spanish is my first language. All of my primary, like, you know, toddler memories come from Puerto Rico. I, you know, that that's my culture. That's where I'm from. And so that's where my lineage is at. But that lineage question is also something I'm diving much deeper into these days. As I start to get to know not just my family ancestry, but get to know colonization in a much deeper way. And for anybody who's not Mm -hmm. familiar, Puerto Rico has been colonized for a little over 500 years, first by the Spaniards in 1490. I think it was 1494. And then U.S. colonization currently for the last 150 years. So it's the history of Puerto Rico is is one of a lot of complexity. And so is the racial and ethnic background of the people there. Because of the Spaniards, we were involved in the transatlantic slave trade. And so there was a lot of native genocide on the island um, of the Taino people, indigenous community. And then there was also the slave trade by way of the African people that they decided to bring onto the island for, you know, sugar production and all that stuff. So the island itself is very diverse by way of a lot of oppressive systems. And that means also that due to colonization, a lot of the records that were kept were kept by the oppressor. So a lot of my personal ancestry is kind of lost because Mm. we didn't, you know, they didn't, the Spaniards were the ones that kept the records of, you know, who, who was married to who and who had children by who and all of that stuff. So it's very hard for me to say like my lineage sums back, you know, 3000 years to such and such land. We don't have that in my family because of that a deeper colonization that happened. So I can go as far back as about three or four generations before we kind of hit a little stopping point where we really just aren't sure where, you know, half of my lineage comes from. Wow. Yeah. So you could be Taino indigenous, you could be black, you could be Spanish, mm-hmm. you could, I mean, there's so much in that. Yeah. Yeah. For over 500 years. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that. I think the, the farthest back that we can go is through the, my Spanish lineage, which we, we have been able to trace back for until about the 1400s. But past I that, see. yeah, outside of that, um, you know, I'm pretty up to this point because I've asked a lot of questions and, you know, tried to dive as deep as I can. Uh, I can pretty much tell that one of my uh, grandmothers and great grandmothers most likely was an African descendant. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, beyond that, 
but you know the the native side that would have to be done through like you know something like a 23 and me in order for me to find out yeah yeah the colonial legacy for folks who are not like purely European <laughs> descended mm-hmm. can be really frustrating and maddening like a lot of what i share in my work of belonging is connecting to your ancestors Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I've just heard from so many folks of color who are like, okay, <laughs> that's yeah. really hard <laughs> for a lot of it us. Is. We hit a wall, we hit the wall of colonization and it's, and we don't know what's beyond it. And it's like, yeah, I hear mm-hmm. you. Yeah. It's, it's actually what I've come to find out. It is a huge privilege to know your ancestry and how far yes. back it can really go. That really is truly 100% a privilege because you know, some some cultures have been colonized for a long time and through genocide and through erasure, it's just very hard for us to have that sense of connection or even just that that knowledge. Um, but for other people, they've been able to preserve their their ancestry and their lineage and don't have as many issues as some of us do. So yeah, it's a, it's absolutely a privilege mm-hmm. to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the keeping of records, um, mm-hmm. like being literate, <laughs> like there's right, or even oh, I had a, a friend. She's Guamanian, mm-hmm. and she said, you know, just living on an island like Guam, like we couldn't keep written records because of storms and humidity, <laughs> and so right. we just couldn't have records of our lives. I thought, oh my gosh, yes, yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Okay, well, thank you for sharing a bit of your lineage and yeah, who and what you come from. I'd love to know more about, because you are a yoga practitioner and you are not Indian. Yes. No. And so (laughs) can we enter from that place because you're such a, like a fierce stand and educator around decolonizing yoga. That's like a very popular thing that people do for wellness and health and well-being and peace of mind. And so I have an Indian friend who said to me that she will only, like the word yoga means so much more than just like a series of poses over an hour. So she will only do yoga with like true, and she hasn't found it yet, like true um, like Indian practitioners who understand like the religious sacred meaning of it. And I thought that's given me a lot of thought. And that's also brought up this understanding. Like, do I even understand what the word namaste means? Like, do I even understand? And so I'm kind of throwing a lot at you, but this is the jumble that's in my brain as someone who goes to yoga and practices it. Like how, let's just dive in from there. What are your thoughts? 100%. 100%. Yeah. I mean, this is the the work that I have been doing for the past about year and a half now. And this work has really led me to diving so deeply into this topic that every time I dive a little bit deeper, I find something new and it helps me to connect a little bit more. And so what I mean by that is me, myself, not practicing a spiritual practice that does not come from my own culture. And there are reasons for that. But that really led me to seeking out a lineage within yoga that I could practice so that I could, you know, try and honor the practice as best as I could, but also really understand what I was getting myself into. And so 
Well, I started practicing yoga just like many other people do at a yoga studio, doing postures and feeling very much like it was a workout, but, you know, in a, in a much more lighthearted way. <laughs> and I realized quickly, uh, once I started to like really get deep into it, that I perhaps wasn't as knowledgeable about what I was practicing as, you know, most people were. And so I really sought to, when I wanted to become a teacher, I really sought out a teacher training that wasn't at a studio, but that was as authentic and as traditional as I could possibly find, given Mm. my level of finances. Because as people of color know, like many of us do not come from a lot of access or privilege. And so even studying or training at a studio can be out of our reach. It's not accessible to us. So I really did a lot of deep diving and research. And what I uh, was able to find was the Shivananda Yoga lineage. And that's what I decided to train in. And very quickly within day one of my training, I realized I absolutely knew nothing about the yoga practice that I had been practicing for the two years up to that point. What I had been taught at the yoga studio was very whitewashed. It was very linear, meaning it was like a very one-dimensional way of practicing yoga that wasn't at all touching the surface of of what the practice actually was. And so I lived at the ashram for about a month for over a summer. And I learned so, so much about the practice. I I learned about myself. I learned about the philosophy. I just uh, got an introduction, like for the first time in two years, I got an introduction into what yoga was actually meant to be and meant to be practiced as. And I've been, you know, a devoted student and teacher ever since. And I also acknowledge that that still doesn't mean that I'm an expert in yoga by any means, because what I've come to learn is that yoga philosophy and yoga as a practice is very culturally Indian and South Asian. Mm. And so that unless you really come from that part of the world, there are going to be things that you miss culturally. And that's just something that I have to come into acceptance of and make sure that I do my very best to make sure that I am respecting and honoring the lineage and the practice as best as I can, and also bringing in uh, teachers who are South Asian and who are Indian, who can really teach me about some of the things that I might be ignorant about. And that's a very different perspective that I think most yoga teachers have, where they're actually actively trying to divorce the practice from Indian culture. I'm actually seeking it out. And that's a very different perspective to have as well. Wow. Yes. I really do feel the difference that you're describing between the two and having, having gone to yoga, like I went to, I did goat yoga. Oh, (laughs) and I I know I'm, I did it. And, (laughs) you know, like they shouldn't have called it that, you know, you know, it was just so, and I could feel in my body, like this isn't feeling right, you know? And so I'm curious what your answer is to this question. I'm hearing about how you spent time at the ashram and coming to have a deep reverence and honoring of the origins of and meaning, like true meaning of what yoga is. So I'd love to know, I mean, it might be hard to put into words, because I know it's a very deep experience, Mm -hmm. but what is yoga to you? Yeah. I mean, to me, it's, it's what I was traditionally taught. And so yoga really does mean union. And I know a lot of people throw that word around because that's the 
the direct translation of what yoga is. But that union isn't, you know, in a fluffy way. It literally means you uh, connecting yourself, your human self, your body, physical stance, mind to the divine. So understanding that you are not actually your body or your mind, that you are a divine creature. And that is how I approach the practice. So that means I do, you know, I I have a disciplined approach to uh, yoga that allows me to remember who I actually am and allows me to really get that sense of connection to divinity so that I can see the divinity in others as well. So that is what the yoga practice actually means to me or what yoga, practicing yoga means to me. And outside of that, the philosophy really does help to remind me that in any situation that I'm in, and this all goes back, you know, around to like social justice or systemic oppression or anything like that, is the things that I'm experiencing out in the world are actually just an illusion of what society is trying to create at any given moment. And so that might sound like really out there and really like trippy, but (laughs) what that helps me realize is that whatever dominant culture, whatever white supremacy says about me that actually harms me isn't really who I am. So therefore, Mm -hmm. I don't have to internalize what dominant culture says about me or what I'm supposed to be like, or, you know, any of these, uh, these ways that I used to internalize the different forms of oppression that I was facing. I don't have to internalize that because that's not who I really am. And that allows me to have a sense of freedom and liberation that I wouldn't otherwise have if I didn't have the yoga practice. And so what I think people mean when they say yoga saved my life, I hear that so much. And I used to say it all the time too. I think what they actually mean by that is that there's a sense of liberation when you are practicing yoga in in the true sense of the word that allows you to go much deeper than any like worldly ways of living that we are consistently a part of. And so that in its true sense is what makes yoga a liberatory practice. And it liberates you not just from, you know, systemic oppression, but it literally liberates you from your own ego. It liberates you from this attachment to your body. It liberates you from the attachment of being this physical human being on this planet. And that for me as a person of color who is consistently reminded by society of what they think I am or who I'm supposed to be, that is such a much better approach for me to take because then I don't have to get caught up in dominant culture. I don't have to get caught up in politics. I don't have to get caught up in all of these different ways that try to make me fearful of my life. I can literally remind myself that, you know what, I am not who they say I am. I am divine. And therefore, I am going to live my life in in that way. And I'm going to approach everything I do, including my work in that way. And I'm going to see the divinity in others, even if they are part of dominant culture, because I can see that they also need to be liberated as well from these notions of white supremacy. So that was kind of a long winded answer to that. But 
I think for me that the the social justice aspect of yoga has really come full circle for me as somebody who before the practice was a devoted activist in many different ways, whether it was actual social justice or animal rights and liberation. It has allowed me to take my activism also into my home and, and really use it as a mindset shift that I can start to utilize in a way that it just helps me approach this world in a much different way. I'm, I'm like on a totally different wavelength. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. I really feel that. I really feel the way it fortifies you in this world, in this culture, as a woman of color, as an activist, as a being in this time. Right? It's, it's a hard mm-hmm. time to be in. And, and that it fortifies you, it, it feeds you, it nourishes you in that way. That's so much better sounding to me than like, uh, it's a really great workout, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. it's so much yeah. deeper. Yeah. Okay. I'd love to dive into the problematic side of, mm-hmm. of uh, yoga culture here in the Western world. Because I sometimes I realize I gloss over that, and I know that so many of us need like tangible, like tell me, like so <laughs> that it can wake up that you know sort of like um, side the amnesia of of whiteness sort of like makes it like I'm confused, and right. so if if we can name it here, I think it would be really powerful for everyone who's listening. So if you could, if we could talk a bit more about the appropriation and the problematic ways yoga is being, not yoga itself, sorry, uh, practitioners and business owners and people are perpetuating harm with yoga. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the one of the predominant ways that we currently see is the appropriation of yoga. And I'm by no means an expert in appropriation, but I do I I as a person of color who does come from a different culture, I have a a, a pretty visceral understanding just from my own lived experience of having my own culture appropriated. And so I can spot the different ways that yoga has been appropriated just from my own understanding uh, through my my teachers and my my friends who are Indian and South Asian. And so I think one of the the major things is like you noted is thinking of yoga as just asana as postures or as a workout. I don't think most people understand. They might intellectually know, but they don't truly understand that the asana practice or these postures or this workout that you're go- walking into the studio and experiencing is just a very, very, very small portion. I would say like a 5% of the actual yoga practice. And that's not by accident. I think that people love to be really identified with their bodies. And so they go into a yoga class that tells them not to identify with their bodies by moving their bodies, I think that in some way, even though it's like very um, counterintuitive, (laughs) I think it still attracts people to the practice because we do have in this society a general, I guess, 
lack of understanding around what true body positivity looks like. And so the yoga studio Mm. has become that place where, you know, you can feel comfortable in your body and you can feel good about, you know, the way that you look, even though that's not what the yoga practice is intended for. What it's intended for is to liberate you from your identity to your body. And so that, that liberation can be found, but I think the way that it's being currently practiced is a little bit counterintuitive in that sense, because once we obsess over the body, even if we think we're being positive about our body, once we start obsessing over something, that's the ego attaching itself to itself. And uh, once you have that level of attachment, it's very hard to not suffer, right? Like it's very hard to not have your feelings hurt. It's very hard to not feel some kind of way when that is taken away from you. And so, you know, we're talking about the the physical aspect of yoga, which very much does have asana and postures and movement as part of it. But it's a very, very small part of what the yoga practice discipline is actually meant to be doing. And so... I think that's one of the major ways that we see it. And then the other way is just the whitewashing of the practice. So the divorcing, you know, its original traditional Indian culture out out of it. So whether that is through um, Sanskrit, you know, or using symbols or deities as decoration inside of the yoga studio, or even teaching the philosophy out of context are the many different ways that we see yoga being appropriated. But mainly what I see is that people really truly have no understanding of what the philosophy is actually teaching people, meaning like through the sacred texts and through Vedanta, if that's if that's what you're practicing. They, they really have no idea. And so that is probably the most frustrating part for me as somebody who has been studying Advaita Vedanta for the last like eight years, is to walk into studios where they're reading reading like uh, Rumi quotes or reading poems in the yoga class, but you know, just have no idea how to act effectively teach a yoga class that is actually going to be suitable for a student to then take home and be able to practice at home. Because again, that's what the yoga practice is meant to do is you're meant to have it passed down from teacher to student, but then the student is supposed to be able to go home and practice the many different disciplines that yoga encompasses, whether that's kriyas, which is like where neti pot comes from, whether that's a kriyas or, you know, tongue scraping or having a meditation as your morning routine or, Mm. you know, drinking a specific tea or, you know, detoxing your body. There are just so many different ways that you can practice yoga that don't require you to pay $25 to a studio in order for you to do it. So there is this codependency between the student and the teachers right now and between the student and the yoga studio where people feel like they have to shell out all this money in order to, you know, have an effective yoga practice when actually they're just truly just paying into a capitalistic system now. So that's one one of the major ways. And then the other way is just, you know, dominant culture has really infiltrated this and taken it on as its own. And we see that in the many different styles, quote unquote, styles of yoga. So that would look like vinyasa, that would look like anusara, that would look like booty yoga and goat yoga and all of these, you know, now yeah. trademarked <laughs> styles that we see that are literally 50 years old or less. And that's that's a commodification of a practice that uh, certain people 
from dominant culture really truly don't understand, but they think that, oh, I I can practice and teach this better than, you know, the ancient traditions can. And therefore I'm going to charge X amount of dollars and I'm going to do all these teacher trainings and I'm going to create this new way, this new mm. age of yoga in a way that really truly benefits me rather than the student. And so that's that's another major frustration for me. And I uh, hear a lot from my my Indian friends and my South Asian friends who just refuse to step into yoga studios, very similar to your friend who refuses to take a yoga class by anyone that's not South Asian. And it's understandable just because there's there's so many frustrating things within the yoga studio model and so many oppressive ways that the yoga studios operate under that um, are actually very much against what the yogic principles are all about. Wow. Yeah, I really hear you. And there's yoga studios everywhere. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Side note, what are your thoughts on Bikram? Yeah, so I um I think I took maybe two Bikram classes in in my life in the 10 years that I've been practicing yoga and it really wasn't for me and after after studying, you know, what I study <laughs> and after also having a very connected practice to Ayurveda now in this mm. uh since last summer, I understand why and it it really goes down to my constitution. It's just a hot room mixed with movement is just it does not go well with my body. And so that's probably why I had such a an immediate aversion to it um, after my first class. Mm-hmm. But also understanding how Bikram himself operated and how yeah. he really Gnarly. twisted, yeah, he really twisted his teacher's teachings and commodified it as his own. I I truly can understand how something like that would happen in the U.S., but also how that has also. Uh, contributed to the many different forms of appropriation that we currently um, see in the yoga world. So my thoughts and feelings about Bikram is I had an immediate aversion to it. So I only took like one or two classes. And my, you know, on a deeper level than that, I refuse to give my money to a system that has been oppressive in so many different ways um, and forms. And so that I personally do not recommend or practice that form. Yeah, and then I watched the Netflix documentary. Yeah. I wasn't – and then I was like, okay, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> no. Definitely was repelled by it. Highly recommend that to anyone listening. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also goes to a much deeper conversation, not just around like sexual assault and power structures and how these different power dynamics between a teacher and a student can be manipulated and twisted um, to Mm -hmm. really benefit the person who is going to benefit the most from that type of relationship. But it also goes into a much deeper conversation uh, around, you know, the education of yoga, of what yoga actually is in this country, because somebody like him was able to come, come to the Indian man. Yeah, an Indian man was able to come to the United States and commodify it and and twist it to benefit him, but had so many followers for that uh, long, I think it was 30 plus years or something like that. 
because people truly did not understand what they were getting into. And I think if people had a general understanding of what yoga actually is, they would be able to spot people like that, you know, manipulators and and really sociopaths. <laughs> I think they'd be yeah. able to um, spot them a lot earlier versus having an idea that, you know, they're actually practicing uh, a traditional form when they're really not. Yes. Okay. This is a great segue for people listening who are like, okay, I'm in. Wow. I'm seeing all the ways, you know, I was perpetuating harm. You know, my studio, my beloved studio is appropriating. So if I know that you have a course on this, but if you could maybe give us several ways we can call our studios into deeper integrity or find, you know, where should we put our money? Where should we put our attention? How can we be part of, of shifting this mm-hmm. culture in the Western world so that we are have a deeper reverence and appreciation and practice when it comes to yoga? Yeah. Well, there's a few different ways to go about it. And the the different ways that I kind of approach this topic are, you know, by talking directly to spiritual bypassing or by talking directly to the lack of diversity and representation in the yoga industry. And I think for people to dive deeper into this topic, we first have to understand like what's our intention behind even practicing yoga? And then what is the one way that we can get start to get committed into having a much deeper conversation around it? Um, there are a lot of disparities in the yoga industry currently because dominant culture has kind of taken it and commodified it and, and now it's become Become, you know, so so trendy and so such a uh, valuable commodity as far as like, you know, taxes and billion dollar industry and all of that stuff. And so it's going to take a long time <laughs> to dismantle it. Um, but I think if individuals that are either practitioners or teachers really took the time to understand what's your intention behind actually practicing what you practice then we can kind of take it from there. So if your intention behind practicing is, is you know, the body positivity aspect of it, well, then we need to really start talking about a diversity and representation because the yoga industry itself has become so monolithic in the way that it's being represented and who is owning the studios and in what neighborhoods are they opening these studios, who is walking into the door, who's welcome, who's not, who has accessibility, who has the privilege to be there. All of these different things are, you know, encompassing your experience at the studio level. And so we can really start to tackle diversity, representation, inclusion, and anti-racism when once we understand, like, my intention for being a, a practitioner is so that I can feel better about myself and my body. So why wouldn't I want that for everybody else? And why don't I see that for everyone else at those spaces that I occupy? So that's one way. Another way is the spiritual bypassing, is understanding that perhaps you um, have been practicing a whitewashed form of yoga and that it's going to take a little bit of a mindset shift in order for you to really see that, you know, we are. Uh, a lot of uh, yoga practitioners like to say, like, I don't see color. We're all one. We're all the same. Mm -hmm. Well, would that actually be true if, you know, your studio is lacking a lot of diversity and representation? And are you utilizing yogic spirituality in order to bypass that reality? 
because um, that's what I currently see in uh, in many different forms. When I go into yoga studios and I don't see uh, representation, proper representation, I don't see black or brown teachers. I don't see South Asian teachers. I don't see you know bigger bodied uh, teachers. And mm-hmm. the studios are all owned by uh, white women. Then that doesn't mean we're all one. That means <laughs> that there's a certain demographic that thinks they're all one, and then everybody else, you know, can take it or leave it. And so that spiritual bypassing is one of the different ways that you can manipulate the philosophy or manipulate the practice into fitting whatever ideology it is that you hold or into fitting into whatever identity that you have or that you feel you've been raised with. And so what I mean by identity is that we have to understand how um, intersectionality operates and works in this country and and in many different countries, not not just the U.S., but we also have to understand that because of identity and you know race being a social construct it's not actually real it's not based out of any science but it is very in a very real way being used to oppress people whatever's happening in the outside world is also happening inside of the yoga studio and so really truly we don't have such a thing as a sacred space in the united states in the form of a yoga studio because it is operating under a capitalistic system. And so anytime you have capitalism mixing in with spirituality, there's going to be many different forms uh, that bias comes into play, particularly when 90%, if not more, of yoga studios in the United States are owned by white women specifically. Mm -hmm. So when Mm -hmm. we take that into account, then we can start to see how spiritual bypassing starts to infiltrate the yoga studio. And we can think to ourselves that we're all one, but in actual practice, we're not really walking the talk, if you will. So those are the the two major um, approaches that I see into having this deeper conversation. And then the 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 thing about you know once you start really actively looking at all of these different ways that yoga has become oppressive or yoga has become exclusive and not uh, inclusive. Then we got to start talking about commitment. So are you really committed to becoming an ally? And this doesn't mean that, you know, if you're white, you have to be an ally to people of color. This can even go for people of color. Are you willing to be an ally for South Asians and Indians who are wanting to also have this conversation in a much deeper way around appropriation because they are also being excluded from the conversation? So Mm. are you willing and committed to being an ally and moving towards being an accomplice, meaning not just somebody who is um, having uh, intellectual conversations around this, but actually actually taking action to make sure that diversity representation is being at the forefront of the practice, not only in their personal lives, but also in the yoga studio setting. And then that that commitment will then start to look like you either stepping aside to give to provide equity for a teacher of color if you're a teacher or that will look like you having a real honest conversation with a studio owner as a practitioner and as a as a client of that studio to ensure that there are yoga teachers of color in that space and that will also apply to yoga conferences that will also apply to the yoga magazines um, and that will also apply to the clothing lines that are earning a profit from this practice so 
if you're really wanting to go much deeper than just intellectualizing this as an issue, then that's going to take a lot of commitment. And right now, that's what yoga teachers of color are actively not seeing is that people are, are doing a lot of talking, but they're not doing a lot of action. And, mm-hmm. and, and it keeps us stuck in a really segregated yoga studio system where like we're still walking into yoga studios that are not truly representative of the communities that they're supposed to serve. So it's very multifaceted and it feels it sometimes it sounds like it's really complex and it's really hard and it's really challenging. But once you really start to do the work, it's just like everything else. It's just like the yoga practice. You just do one thing at a time and really learn to get committed to being disciplined around what it's going to actually take to be committed to um, diversity and representation. Thank you for all of that. I think what's coming to me from what you're sharing, so much good stuff, is we can speak, if if we're practitioners and not teachers, we can speak to the studios in our area, ask to speak to the owners and bring up, like, bring up these topics you're talking about. Like, why don't we have like teachers who are different sizes, who are different colors, like how are we honoring, how are you honoring like the lineage of this practice that you're making money off of? I got to tell you, I did bring up with um, a former studio, not the one we were talking about at the beginning, uh, because they were carrying the line spiritual gangster. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I was like, and I I can't, I can't. (laughs) <laughs> Do you understand the implications of this word? Right. It was a really uncomfortable conversation. I mean, it yeah. was, but then yeah. I don't know if they pulled it or not, or like namaste in bed, where I was like, no, right, namaste right. or whatever. So I think this, what I, I'm hearing you say is like, we, it's cool to intellectualize it. Fine. Great. You're aware of it, but like, we got to do stuff. And so if there are, if there are these studios, you know, there's like thousands, millions of studios let's let's have the uncomfortable conversations we'll survive and yeah and really make this a bigger issue because it is yeah absolutely and i think one of the other levels of conversation that is currently happening within yoga teachers um who do identify as bipoc black indigenous people of color um one of the major things that we're also seeing is that around that intellectualizing is that even when we're talking about social justice or diversity inclusion or even anti-racism we are seeing still a lot of white women stepping in as the experts in that with still very very little action to back up their words and so what i mean by that is like you as a practitioner may have found a yoga teacher that is actually talking about social justice and actually talking about the importance of diversity and inclusion, but you're seeing them in all the magazines and they're being featured as speakers in all the yoga conferences. And there's a reason why they are the ones that are being centered still without them kind of stepping down and still talking about the importance of it, but stepping down or stepping aside so that a yoga teacher of color can have that equity and have that that center stage, really. And so we're still seeing a lot of whiteness being centered around social justice. And I think, you know, if you look up the hashtag social justice warrior on Instagram, you're going to see a lot of white 
teachers or a lot of white people in there because the whiteness is still being centered in mm-hmm. a way that I don't think many people understand what how that actually or how that looks and what that actually means. <laughs> and so once right. you start to unpack how whiteness actually operates, it really is a mentality. And as soon as you're able to notice, like, this is the mentality that I've had, or this is the mentality that, you know, has been passed down, and this is what uh, white supremacy actually looks like, then you can start to untangle that, and then action can start to take its place. So rather than intellectualizing and just talking about diversity and talking about how we're all one, you actually will say, well, wait a minute. If I'm being if I'm being asked to be a speaker in this yoga conference because I as a white woman talk about diversity and inclusion, why don't I then take that privilege and uh, request them to actually give that invitation to a brown or black woman or a person who can actually speak to these different issues from a lived experience rather than in- an intellectual one. And that is such a great way to show that not only are you an ally, but you're an active accomplice in doing this work and not centering yourself as the expert or the leader. That speaks volumes rather mm-hmm. than you know you continually being centered and featured in magazines and conferences and constantly um, you know, providing trainings and having a podcast or whatever it might look like, that speaks volumes in itself. And when you're willing to not center yourself consistently and not feel like you have that entitlement to do so, then we can truly have a diverse yoga industry. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for clarifying that and really underlining it because the centering of whiteness, I think, is something that sometimes gets missed in the fog. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, can you see? Can you see? Can we see? Right. <laughs> and just so, thank you, thank you for that. I I want to wrap up just talking a bit more about the word namaste. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I like can't say it anymore. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. I feel uncomfortable, and I think it's said a lot in my community, and I think it in, again, well-meaning. And I just love to know your thoughts on what it means and and when it's used and yeah, just to just to round it out. Yeah, so I definitely have uh, learned a lot from this. Um, traditionally, in my own uh, yoga teacher training, that's not a word that they use in, in ever. <laughs> at really? The oh, yeah. Really? It's not, you know, it it's a greeting. Um, it's meant to be used as a greeting, but it's not a greeting that they would use in, in my particular lineage. And so the only reason I ever said it, and I do want to very expressly remind people, like, I am not an expert in appropriation and I am not exempt from appropriating. So uh, when I was mm-hmm. uh, first practicing, I would say namaste in that pronunciation. I would say it at the end of class. Um, And the reason I would do that is because all the mentors that I had at the time were white yoga teachers, uh, senior level white Mm -hmm. yoga teachers, and that's how they taught me to teach. And so 
I just kind of fell in line with the rest of everybody else. But once I started to like really dive deeper into this uh, several years ago, and then even just as soon as like a year and a half ago, I realized not only was I pronouncing the word incorrectly, I was using the word incorrectly and I was overusing it, meaning like I didn't actually know what I was saying or what the word actually meant. And it wasn't appropriate for me to use it at the end of class or even at the beginning of class because, again, that's that's a greeting that is uh, used very culturally in India, but it it's not necessary to have it in the yoga in the yoga studio setting and context. And so after diving, you know, super deep into that and having a lot of friends really educate me on this, then I myself have stopped stopped using the word. I haven't um, said it or taught it in about a year and a half, maybe. And I have, you know, since changed my the way that I end my classes. It is not uncomfortable. It's not awkward. It might be for students who have been practicing for a little while and are very used to ending the class with a little bow and a namaste. (laughs) But, you know, they learn quickly that uh, we we just don't do that in this space. And so I think that's just one like level of guidance that I can provide to teachers who, you know, just really don't know or understand what why they say it or or how it's inappropriate. And then the other thing is like really understanding like why why do we feel so attached to using that and why do we feel so attached to commodifying it so you mentioned a little bit about namaste or namaste in bed why do we feel so attached to using a word that doesn't come from our culture and then using it as slang when we don't truly know the original meaning in the first place so i think that is a really great place to start also but i think just the fact that like we have consistently mispronounced that name has left a really bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. And I just don't think it's necessary anymore. Um, and so I would just really guide people to like really questioning like what, why am I using this word? Why do I feel so comfortable using it consistently? And then if I had to let it go, why is it hard to let it go? Because I think that's a major thing for most yoga practitioners and teachers specifically is that they may hear that like actually you're using this word wrong, but they still refuse to let it go. And I I really wonder why it's hard for, for someone to let that part of teaching go because it's really not part of the practice. So uh, it really shouldn't be that hard to let go of it. Yeah. What is the correct pronunciation? <laughs> to my understanding, it's namaste. Oh, okay. Different. Yeah. Yes. Than what we're all saying. Uh, yeah. There's actually a really funny video on YouTube, and I can't remember the name of the, the video, but it's a comedian, a, an Indian comedian, and um, he actually tells a really great like five-minute bit on uh, how Americans say namaste and how that's just a joke and it's like not at all the way mm. you're supposed to say it or in the context. <laughs> so I would urge people mm. to go and find that video, but um we'll yeah, find it. Our, <laughs> we're, we'll super sleuth and it'll be in the show notes at belonging podcast. I, I can't wait to yeah. watch it. Oh, it's great. It's fantastic. But yeah, it's for, to my understanding it's namaste. Got it. Thank you. Thank you for educating us on that. And um, thank you so much for your time and your labor and educating us and your wisdom. And it feels, uh, I feel invigorated and 
totally ready to do some work on for this cause because it feels it is important. It's very important. So, so uh, people in the LA area, if they want to take a class with you, where would they go? And when? Yeah. So right now I'm actually only teaching workshops at the moment, um, workshops okay. and trainings. So if they are local to LA, I would uh, just go onto my Instagram or sign up for my newsletter so you can be notified when I do a local event. And my website is embodyinclusivity.com and you can sign up for my newsletter and be a part of you know a group that gets notified of all of my local workshops. Um, but I also travel doing workshops as well. So if you're outside of LA, um, you can still get notified when I travel. Um, I'm currently going to San Jose to teach a uh, seven-hour training on embodied inclusivity and anti-racism and how that works in the yoga industry. And, um, and I travel pretty much all over the U.S. And my Instagram is where you will also be notified of my online workshops and trainings. Uh, which I do pretty consistently almost every month. So people can um, find me at eliana.shanea on Instagram. Nice. And we'll put links to all of that in the show notes and belongingpodcast.com as well. Thank you so much. This was um, a really delightful and informative conversation, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate being asked. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me. I know your time is sacred and the fact that you spent it with me talking about belonging means a lot. If you want to access show notes or links to old episodes, check out belongingpodcast.com. And if you know a friend who could really benefit from listening to this episode, share it with them. I'll talk to you soon.